on Textbooked. Struggle for naval supremacy was important because the Second World War did indeed involve two giant coalitions of force, not equally distributed. The Allies were always in superior material resources, but a long way off. So geography itself meant that sea power in the Second World War was going to be absolutely vital. Without control and command of the seas, you could not get, could not imagine, a victory over the Axis. You're listening to Untextbooked. This is the podcast that gives students and young people the power to follow our curiosity. There's so many stories throughout the world. Reading even one topic or one story can provide me a deeper dive into who I truly am and where I come from. We can better understand the trajectory we're moving on as both a nation and a society. We talk to leading journalists, historians, writers, changemakers, you name it. It's pressing, it's concerning, it was shocking. And through that, we take the history out of the textbook. I'm Gabe Hostin. And I'm Will Burrell. And you're listening to Untextbooked. In the 1930s, only six naval powers commanded the entire world's oceans. Can you tell us why that was? This goes back to something called the Washington Naval Treaty. This agreement put in writing that the United Kingdom and the United States would receive 60% of the world's battleships. Japan received 20%. And France and Italy would share the last 20%. But by 1945, the United States Navy had expanded to a fleet larger than that of the five other nations. That is a huge growth spurt. What exactly did that mean in the wake of World War II? Well, if you look at a map, you'll see the geography made it difficult to maintain alliances all over the world. Without naval control, the United States might not have won World War II. On this episode of Untextbooked, Will interviews Professor Paul Kennedy, author of Victory at Sea, Naval Power and the Transformation of the Global Order in World War II. Today, we look at how the expansion of the U.S. Navy during World War II cemented them on top of a new international world order. Hi, Professor Kennedy. Nice to see you again. Nice to see you. It's been a while. I'm here today to talk to you about your book, Victory at Sea, which I read, and I enjoyed it a lot, actually. That's an area of history that I've been interested in for a very long time. And so to start off, I wanted to ask... What made the struggle for naval supremacy in the Second World War important, just generally? The struggle for naval supremacy was important because the Second World War did indeed involve two giant coalitions of force, not equally distributed. The Allies were always in superior material resources, but a long way off. And if the struggle between the Grand Alliance of the United States, the British Empire, and the Soviet Union against Nazi Germany and Mussolini's Italy and Japan was to prevail, then some larger overseas resources from the United States and from the Western Hemisphere had to be transported across the seas to the two closer combatants in the fight against Nazi Germany, that is to say Britain and Russia. And in the Pacific Ocean, there was only one way in which the United States could defeat Japan, or vice versa, 
and I was across the Pacific Ocean. So geography itself meant that sea power in the Second World War was going to be absolutely vital. Without control and command of the seas, you could not get, could not imagine, a victory over the Axis. Thank you. Going into that comment you made about geography, how did the kind of structure of the different theaters of the naval war like influence how it was fought? Well, the biggest contrast and the easiest way to answer that is to to ask listeners to consider a geographical situation of Great Britain, Churchill's Britain, on the one hand, and Adolf Hitler's Germany on the other hand. Britain is an offshore island. It depends upon connections across the sea to supply it. It uses the sea to be its moat or its defensive system. It therefore has, from the very beginning, a, a maritime grand strategy. It has to pursue something which involves the sea very centrally. Hitler's Germany didn't necessarily have to do that. Maybe it just should have concentrated upon gobbling up its eastern neighbors, you know, one at a time, Czechoslovakia, taking over Hungary and making it a sub-satellite, taking over Poland, moving further, but not bothering with the sea. The fact that Adolf Hitler decided to move westwards in 1940 to knock out France, to take over the Netherlands, Belgium, Denmark, Norway, meant it became a serious sea power and therefore had to fight a maritime war, as well as it turned out a land war against the Soviet Union and an air war against the growing Anglo-American strategic bombing campaign. Geography dictated where you were, well, depends upon how you fight and where you fight. Thank you. How did that take place, say, in the Mediterranean? What factors influenced that kind of field of conflict? The Mediterranean saw initially a clash between two empires, one existing, long-existing status quo empire, which was Great Britain, which had many possessions through the Mediterranean, starting with that great entrance fort of Gibraltar, the central island of Malta, and then the half-control it had of Egypt and the Sudan and the eastern Mediterranean. And that line, which ran from west to east through the Mediterranean, crossed over the line coming from north to south, from fascist Italy, Mussolini's Italy, to Italy's own territories of conquest in North Africa and Northeast Africa. So because one country was wanting to dominate the north-south route, and the other was wanting to dominate the east-west route or the west-east route, then they clashed. They clash in the middle, and they clash repeatedly because the British try to interrupt Mussolini's links to North Africa. And the Italians, and later on when joined by some German forces, try to interrupt the British line of communications to the island fortress of Malta and further through to Egypt. So one had to win, one had to prevail, but neither side in the first two and a half years of that fighting in the Mediterranean was strong enough to do it. It only really happens by the time the Anglo-American forces take over North Africa by the end of 42, beginning of 43, and then move slowly to advance in the central Mediterranean and knock out Italy by September of 1943. A long, long struggle. 
In a similar vein, what factors influenced the conflict in the Pacific and the Atlantic? They're two different campaigns, even though, of course, both of them are across a great stretch of ocean, 3,000 miles of the Atlantic routes from the harbors of New York and Baltimore, Philadelphia, across to Great Britain on the one hand, and the 7,000 so miles of Pacific Ocean all the way from San Francisco and San Diego westwards across the 24-hour dividing line zone to Japan in the far Pacific, or vice versa. Either way, there were stupendous long gaps and distances in the Pacific in all of the campaigns, which made it a very special one. The other thing that has to be remembered, Will, is that in the central Pacific, apart from the Hawaiian Islands, an absolutely strategic point of American possession, there's nothing else. When you go westwards from Hawaii, you've got a long way to go to like very, very small Wake Island or to Guam. So, but there's no way in which you could, you can't put a big army there because there's no place for an army to settle. It's maybe not surprising that in the debates between the various armed services of the United States, the army under General Marshall and others always preferred to think of a European fight because that's where they could put a big army in, just as they had done in 1917 and 1918. For the U.S. Navy, the long distances across the Pacific were advantageous to its own position among the American services and among its reputation with the American people because it would have to be primarily a maritime fight in the Pacific to defeat Japan. In the Atlantic, it's a maritime fight just to preserve the lines of communication. By winning the Battle of the Atlantic, you did not actually defeat Adolf Hitler. You just created a secure line of communication to the British island fortress from which you could launch your invasion of France. So there are two very complicated, different grand strategies depending upon the Atlantic one or the Pacific one. So in your book, at the beginning, I remember you talk about that five keys theory. Yes. Could you explain that for us just briefly? Yes. So through the course of the 18th century, and despite the loss of the American colonies at the end of that century, and all the way through the 19th century, the British Empire, in rivalry against France, Spain, and other European powers, had steadily accumulated overseas harbors for sailing ships and later on coaling stations for their coaling vessels, whether they were the vessels of the Royal Navy itself or the vessels of the commercial fleets of Great Britain. And so when you looked at a map of the globe, when British navalists, as people who believed in a big navy, or imperialists look at a map of the globe, by the beginning of the 20th century, they kind of rejoiced and they said, look here, when you think of the long distance routes from Britain around to Asia, there seem to be five great keys which lock up the seas of the world. Gibraltar at the entrance to the Mediterranean, Dover at the bottom of the North Sea, locking up the English Channel and the access to the Atlantic Ocean itself. The Cape, the almost 
most important position of all Cape Town and the very south of Africa because it controlled the routes from the Atlantic Ocean into the Indian Ocean. And so they listed these, Some you might change the list around a bit. Well, you know, Singapore maybe, or Aden maybe, or the Falkland Islands. But the theory was that the British Empire had these key positions which gave it such an advantage in world naval strategy. Now, knowing how the war and the Second World War ended up going in the naval scene for the British, there are clearly some flaws to that school of thought as their naval control of the seas was not as assured as they might have thought. What were the flaws in that school of thought? The navalists, of course, triumphantly talked about the primacy of British naval power as they had seen it unfold from the 19th century into the 20th century. And it's supposed that by the building of ever larger battleships, the so-called dreadnought-type, fast, turbine-driven, or big-gun battleships from the 1900s onwards, so long as they had a sufficiency of them, they would have control of the sea. It was therefore kind of ironic to me when I came back to looking a bit more at naval technologies and at weapon systems. And I also, well, it had a long detour away from my early interest in you know, aircraft and ships and other things, gravitated onto more political history and diplomatic and European or colonial history. When I came back to look at the story of technology as it affected the coming Second World War, I realized that just at the time when the navalists were boasting about the all-big-gun battleship and the battle fleet as being the key to controlling the seas and controlling the world, something else was happening. Not only were there insidious newer weapons like the submarine and the torpedo, but there was this even more revolutionary weapon of aircraft and air power. Not so much in evidence during the First World War, though the aircraft at the end of that war were certainly quite a lot more powerful than at the beginning. But in the interwar years, aviation takes off. Air power takes off, I mean, by which I mean long-ranged bomber aircraft and different types of bomber aircraft as well, not just the very big ones, but also medium-sized bombers, two-engine bombers, which could maybe carry torpedoes, maybe carry an array of weapon systems, dive bombers, which could come in and drop in a shrieking forward trajectory of their own, drop bombs on these ships and make them vulnerable. A torpedo bombers, which were very, very insidious because they flew across just above the surface of the waves and then dropped their torpedoes off about with half a mile to go. So the British did not and the French alongside them at the beginning of the war didn't really have a good sense of how to be able to operate with your superior navies off a shoreline where the enemy, that is to say the Luftwaffe of Nazi Germany, had taken control of the skies. So in some of the early campaigns in the European fighting, the struggle to get control of Norway, which the British lose, the attempt to kind of support France in the summer of 1940, which is unsuccessful. So you have to withdraw your expeditionary forces via the port of Dunkirk. Your battles in the Mediterranean of Crete 
and Greece, the Royal Navy finds itself again and again being bombed from the air and heavily losing warships. It's not clear how warships at sea can deal with this new attacking system coming from the air. So moving on to a certain extent, do you talk about each nation having this kind of preconceived notion that the seas would be ruled by these all big gun fleets of fast, powerful, dreadnought battleships? How did each nation, or I'd say the main players in the war, prepare for a conflict without the knowledge that it would go the way that it did? So let's begin with the Pacific, because that's actually the simplest in the story of the all big gun battleship. Both the Japanese Navy and the U.S. Navy prior to 1941 and somewhere after that were under the greater influence of battleship admirals. They had grown up as young lieutenants and then captains and then uh, further promoted. But to think that the battleship and the battle fleet was at the core of their naval powers at the central part, the central platform of their navies. And therefore, they structured and had persuaded the Congress and persuaded the Japanese uh, government and financiers over there that to build a large battle fleet, a Japanese super battle fleet on the one hand, an American battle fleet operating out of San Diego, Pearl Harbor, would be the way to get decisive victory by hammering at the other side's battle fleet and winning in that slugfest. And if you did win that because you had superior projectiles, because you had better nighttime fighting equipment, this is before radar gives you that further sense of control. But if you did that, you would triumph in the gigantic sort of second Trafalgar, but modern Trafalgar, battle and therefore become dominant. In the European theater, it's not so clear. The British and the French along them until France falls in 1940 have such a superiority of battleships. And the German Navy is just starting to develop its own heavy warships that there isn't that almost equality of punching power that you get in the Pacific. The German ships, when they are ready for sailing, are sent out in a one-by-one kind of raiding capacity. The Graf Spee in the South Atlantic, the battleship Bismarck in the middle of 1941, the battlecruiser Scharnhorst up in the Norwegian waters in 1943, and each of them pay a price for being just a single large surface ship on the German side. In the Mediterranean, there's a quite substantial Italian battle fleet, modern, fast, impressive vessels, larger battle fleet than the Royal Navy itself can put in its Mediterranean fleet. But the Italian battle fleet is really intimidated by the fact that it doesn't have aircraft carriers. It worries a lot about the perhaps superior quick firing of the Royal Navy, and it never, ever comes to battle. So it is in the Mediterranean, disappointingly, no grand slugout battle. In the Atlantic, there are only single raids by those fatal voyages of the Bismarck or the Scharnhorst. And in the Pacific, ironically here, the success of the Japanese aircraft carrier attack upon Pearl Harbor means that the, for a long while, the American battle fleet 
is no more. So there's a Japanese battle fleet built in 1942 to 43, which doesn't have a battle fleet enemy, which means that the U.S. has to turn itself into being primarily an, a long-range air power, aircraft carrier kind of navy, not a battleship navy. What an irony how much those early suppositions of the admirals about battle fleet future war just don't come to happen. Going into that idea about having to change tactics midway through a war, what were the different ways in which admirals and just decision makers in general on all sides began to evolve their tactics to fit the conflict that they were taking part in? This is a really big general question. Maybe I can begin my answer with a general thought here. The great author of the classic textbook on war, Karl von Clausewitz, when he wrote his great book called on, Vom Krieger on War in the early 19th century, had among his many famous phrases, he had that phrase about all of the plans would be that you'll be doing and putting together are good until the firing begins, until the first encounters. And then after that, you have to put aside your previous war plans, your previous assumptions, because now there's just going to be the unfolding of fate. And I think this is a question which all admirals and planners, even to today, ought to be thinking about. What if your pre-war assumptions do not work? What if things happen with newer technologies, early losses at sea, early victories to the other side, collapse of one of your allies? What if things go wrong? What Clausewitz also called frictions, things which slow you down, things which get in the way. What if you have to change and change rather fast? In the first nine months of a war in Europe, British didn't have to do that. We were doing pretty well. And then Caramba, the incredible victories of the German army, the tank army on land, knocking out France and the attacks and successes of the German paratroopers in moving into the smaller states of Western Europe, the fall of France, the taking over the low countries, Denmark, Norway, Italy, Mussolini coming in on the, at last on the side of his buddy Hitler meant an enormous transformation in the balance of power. So that's one thing where the British planners really have to rethink the war that they're going to try to fight. The second thing is that among many of the naval planners, though you did expect the German U-boats to come and attack your lines of communication, your Atlantic convoys, as they had done so well in 1917 and 1918, you felt that with this new acoustical, uh, various hearing devices like ASDIC, you were going to be able to detect the German submarines under the surface, and therefore you would be able to protect your convoys. When the head of the German submarine forces, Admiral Dönitz, ordered his submarines to attack, at night, but on the surface, then ASDIC didn't work. ASDIC was paralyzed. And in the years before radar, that would mean that the German U-boats low slung down on the surface, dark-hulled, 
very hard to see or spot, could creep maybe very, very close to the convoys of 30 or 40 or 50 merchantmen, see them as targets and fire away their torpedoes from a surface position. And only then would they dive deep to get out of the way of the British escort. So the British had to rethink how to protect their, the convoys that they were escorting. It took them obviously a long time, including newer technologies. Radar, surface radar doesn't really come into good existence for them until early 1943. So in many cases, you really have to, the first year of the war, whether it's the war in the Pacific with the destruction of the American battle fleet, or the fall of France in the first year of the war in the West, in Europe, meant that the planners have to, and the tacticians, have to change the way they fight the war. There are lots of lessons in that story, I think. The most important one being to diversify your strategy and prepare for shifts. So in plain terms, if you stay ready, you'll never have to get ready. So moving on, what were some pivotal moments in the naval war that changed the kind of momentum of the war? Again, well, because you have to switch between, you know, the study of victory at sea is about victory in three seas, right? There's a victory in the hotly contested Mediterranean Sea, which doesn't end until 1943. There is a great contestation for command and control of the Pacific Ocean, the Battle of the Pacific, and then there is the Atlantic struggle for victory at sea. So I think in the Pacific, most historians would agree one of the most important of those few pivotal times, pivotal moments, was surely the staggering success of the U.S. carrier dive bombers the Battle of Midway, early in June 1942, where the dive bombers on patrol and looking for the Japanese carriers suddenly spot a gap in the clouds below, and they are their targets. And in the space of a very, very short period of time diving down, they sort of change the Battle of the Pacific. Not in any way in which they've won the Battle of the Pacific, but they have so blunted the aircraft carrier power of the Japanese Navy that the Japanese in the future are going to play cautious. They're going to try and establish a long perimeter rim around all of their early conquests, wait for the Americans to come and then hope to fight it out and to blunt the American attack and to then defeat the Americans in a defensive war. So after midway, in a way, the tides turn. They're not really going to turn until some other pivotal moment, and it's hardly a battle pivotal moment. Well, it's in June 1943 when the first of the new Essex-class aircraft carriers arrives at Pearl Harbor, fresh from its construction in the American shipyards. And it's by the middle of 1943 that those American shipyards, the yards on the traditional yards down the east coast of this country, the yards in the Gulf and the yards, the newer yards up the Pacific Ocean are building aircraft carrier after aircraft carrier, heavy cruisers, new battleships, hundreds and hundreds of destroyers. And so there is a kind of pivotal moment 
I think symbolically, after June 1943, because it's the first arrival of the new aircraft carriers, and those aircraft carriers come across to join Admiral Nimitz's fleet at the rate of almost one new aircraft carrier a month. That's absolutely staggering, and we couldn't even think of doing a quarter of that now, but it so happened. The turning point, the pivotal moment, and the long duration of the fight between the convoys and their escorts on the one hand, the U-boats on the other hand, may have to wait until May of 1943, when the Allied escorting warships, the destroyers, the sloops, the frigates, at last have are equipped with radar so that they can see German submarines, the U-boats coming on the surface, even in the middle of the night, even in the middle of misty conditions, and being able to see the other side, whereas the German U-boats cannot see you, gives an enormous pivotal change in the balance of power in the Battle of the Atlantic. Yeah. So I was wondering how the dynamic of naval supremacy has evolved since the end of World War II. The end of World War II with the total defeat of Japan, of Italy and Nazi Germany, and with the overstraining of most of the combatant nations, apart from this hugely productive United States, meant that the naval balances, the naval landscape, if you like, in 1945 was different from anything that ever existed before. There was one other Navy, the British Royal Navy, but because of economic constraints at home, it was going to steadily shrink and reduce itself. So there was really, for many, many years after 1945, just this enormous predominant American Navy, and none of the other navies were maybe even one-tenth as big. Nothing like that has been seen before. And so from time to time, when the Soviet Union tried to think of producing attack submarines or a hunt for Red October type submarines or other ways, it still was the David against the Goliath, the giant, giant figure of the American Navy. And this has been a, a story of almost 70 years to 80 years since 1945. It is true that nowadays there is the fast growth of some navies in Asia, in particular the Chinese Navy that American planners and admirals worry about because the Chinese seem to be developing rocket systems and submarine systems and uh, building a much, much larger number of medium-sized craft and maybe some aircraft carriers of their own to challenge the U.S. Navy. But I would say overall, for 80 years since the middle years of the Second World War, it has been a story of American unequaled naval supremacy. Thank you. So I think that just about brings this interview to a close. I had a lot of fun talking to you. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for your questions and your discourse today. After your conversation with Professor Paul Kennedy, I'm curious. What stuck with you? While listening to Professor Kennedy, I was interested in how different nations formulated their strategies to protect their interests. It was cool to hear someone so knowledgeable about the subject explain these kinds of things in depth. I've been interested in military history since a very young age, 
but as I started to take more advanced history classes, my interests evolved into exploring the history surrounding the world's largest conflicts. For example, how nations support a war effort, and the diplomatic efforts before and after large conflicts. Thanks so much, Will. Our producer, Will Burrell, is a senior at Milton Academy. Professor Paul Kennedy is a British historian specializing in the history of international relations, economic power, and grand strategy. He's also director of international security studies at Yale University. We've included a link to his work in our show notes. Be sure to follow our podcast on your favorite podcast app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you decide to listen. That way, you'll never miss an episode. Next week's episode is explosive. We're revisiting the Cold War and talking all about nuclear weapons. By the late 1970s, relations between the United States and the Soviet Union are going from bad to worse. By the early 1980s, you have a genuine widespread fear that nuclear war is going to happen. If you like the show, tell your friends, students, professors, and maybe even drop a review or rate the show. We'd love to hear what you think. Our website is untextbook.org, and we're on social media at Untextbook. Our music is by Silas Bowen and Coleman Hamilton. Untextbook is produced in partnership with Pod People, Ann Foos, Matt Sav, Amy Machado, Shirley Wong, Hannah Pedersen, Danielle Roth, Shanice Tyndall, and Michael Aquino. Fernanda Rain is our executive producer, and Cece Payne is our youth program coordinator and producer. Untextbook is a project of the History Collab, an organization that believes in a world where all young people can advance civic well-being for themselves, society, and the planet. Thanks for listening.